0: Listener Production.
1: These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. And as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent. And I'm being transparent about it now as well. And to see that transparency metastasized into something criminal that I absolutely deny makes me question, is there another agenda at play?
0: Hi, I'm Sasha Barbagat. Welcome to this extra episode of The Briefing. You just heard from Russell Brand. The British comedian has been accused of sexually assaulting four women between 2006 and 2013 when he was at the height of his fame. As you heard, the 48 year old denies the allegations. Well, London police say they've received a report of an alleged assault from 2003 in the wake of the allegations, but they have not named Brand. The statement reads, on Sunday, September 17, the Met received a report of a sexual assault, which was alleged to have taken place in Soho in central London in 2003. Officers are in contact with the woman and will be providing her with support. Brand's talent agency and PR team have dropped him and a stand up tour he was on has been postponed. So with all of that said, what is next? Well, to find out, we're joined today by Jahan Kalanta, a Sydney-based lawyer who attracted global attention for his commentary on the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. Jahan, thanks for joining us on The Briefing today. Speaking of what's happening with Russell Brand at the moment, what I find quite intriguing is the narrative that he's already launched, which kind of suggests these accusations are a vendetta or a conspiracy against him. What's your take on that?
1: It's pretty classic. Whenever there's a, a PR type attack on someone, that they would have a response. It's really important to understand in relation to these type of allegations. The report came out, I believe it was two days ago, and then immediately he went on, you know, went on the offensive, saying essentially that you know the things I'm saying are rattling cages. That's the reason that this has happened. So it's not surprising. It's relatively standard, uh, particularly when there's an allegation like this made. Um, there has to be some sort of response. Um, Silence is generally inferred against people.
0: Now, we have to remember that he's denying the allegations. How hard is it to prove something like this almost 20 years later? The first accusation we're hearing of is from 2003. I mean, do these women have much of a chance if their allegations are correct?
1: It's very, very important that the fundamental principle be that victims are believed and they have a right to tell their story. The difficulty is that we as a society are always balancing that against the right of someone to protect their reputation and protect their liberty against people who are making unfounded allegations. And this is a balancing act that's extremely difficult to say. It's important to understand that these are not criminal allegations brought by the police, but rather a Uh, essentially a number of people who've gone to immediate outlet and and have said, we believe that this has happened. And they've given stories, stories which have been corroborated to some extent by people in the industry and to some extent by people uh, themselves making contemporaneous notes. So it's not something that's out of the ordinary. It is very common for there to be a substantial period of time between an allegation being made and someone having going forward with it for whatever reason, whatever that looks like, That is not an uncommon situation. And so I don't think that the passage of time in and of itself is something that's fatal to these allegations being brought to light.
0: You mentioned there, obviously, this is not, he has not been charged at this point. How likely is that to happen, in your opinion, from what we know?
1: It really becomes a question for the prosecution and whether it's in the public interest to do so and whether they believe they would be able to secure a prosecution um, in, in in this light. It's impossible to tell. At this stage, these are allegations that are being compiled against an individual as to a course of conduct. The specific criminality of each of those counts is something that a prosecutor needs to take into account, along with a whole host of other factors. So we don't know at this stage. It really will depend on how the next few weeks play out.
0: Yeah. What have we learned from previous cases involving people like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, R. Kelly? What does history tell us about these high profile allegations that come out against someone who is famous and in the public eye? What can we take from those as we look ahead for Russell Brand?
1: The reality is that the pendulum always swings in relation to this matter. It's a very complicated matter. So if we go back a little bit, looking in the 70s, 80s and 90s, The way that victims of these types of offences were treated was absolutely disgraceful. Like if you read any of the old cross examinations of those type of people, it was horrible. And for a very, very long period of time, victims did not have the courage to come forward because the system was so heavily rigged against them. And it was really like being tied and feathered and, and, and going through hell. Now, the system has made adjustments for that. And there are some proponents who say, well, the pendulum's gone too far, which is often the case when we need to have some sort of adjustment in relation to this, in that people can bring allegations, allegations that are somewhat unsubstantiated, destroy someone's life, and there's no consequences to them. And so we as a society must constantly walk this very thin rope as it moves from extreme to extreme. I think the reality is that Mr. Brand should understandably be concerned, particularly when there's a dearth of evidence that he has behaved in a way. I guess his position on that is, well, I've always been pretty open that I'm a I'm a, I'm a hypersexualized person, I'm promiscuous, and I have behave this way. These are consensual relationships, and essentially, it's a vendetta against me. You know, you're taking A, B, and C, and you're lining it up to make something that's not true. But just because of the passage of time, and just because there's been other other types of cases like this, we really have to look at each case on its own merits. And it really depends on whether this will spur other people to come forward or whether it really is these four isolated individuals.
0: Mm. Speaking of the past, Russell Brand's past, and he's been, like you said, very open about the fact that he was a sex addict uh, and that he was very promiscuous. And in his statement that he released, he said, but all of those relationships have always been consensual. But I wanted to talk about the idea of sex addiction. Is there any element of defence that that can give you in a sexual assault case?
1: No, not at all. Um, Your need to gratify your sexual instincts does not come at the expense of the person's right to go unmolested, unattacked and unassaulted. So it's not, I would say, a meaningful mitigating factor. It may perhaps play some role in some sort of defence strategy where fundamentally we say we misinterpreted it, Um, Because that could be a potential avenue that we go down. You know, he says, well, I thought it was consensual because remember, for it to be an assault, you have to knowingly assault someone if there's a miscommunication that in and of itself may vitiate it although the law has changed recently where we now have affirmative consent laws here in Australia i can't speak to what the legislations like in the uh, in america where one of the assaults allegedly took place or in the united kingdom so he would no doubt be receiving advice from solicitors and lawyers and attorneys across all jurisdictions
0: Mm. I can't help but feel there are similarities to draw between Russell Brand's response and Donald Trump. Obviously, Donald Trump is facing, you know, a number of indictments, lots of charges in different states in the US. And his approach has been, I am the victim. I am the victim of a mainstream conspiracy. People are out to get me. You can kind of see that Russell Brand is taking a similar approach while denying the allegations, and he thinks that it's a vendetta against him. Is this a successful strategy that could work to sway the public in his favour to not believe the people who have come forward with these allegations and to go on his side instead?
1: Fundamentally, there are going to be people on both sides who are extreme, who nothing will sway. There are people who will say that Mr. Brand has done nothing wrong, and this is purely a vendetta against him. There will be people on the other side who say we absolutely believe the victims, and nothing Mr. Brand will say will swing them. It will. There is a, a minority in the middle, really, who have an un uh, you know who have an unblemished view of this, and perhaps these strategies can appeal to them. But largely speaking, it really is a question of to what extent should we accept aversion from someone that's particularly self-serving? And to what extent should we accept allegations that are pretty hard to to, to test substantially after the fact? And that's this incredibly complex system we find ourselves in. And it makes it very difficult to have a, a dialogue because the reality is that there needs to be a place for victims to be heard. They absolutely have a right to come forward. But there also needs to be due process for people to protect their reputation and defend themselves against unsolicited, unasserted attacks.
0: The law's actually changing in Queensland soon where a person accused of rape can be named. And going by what you've just said, that's not something you'd agree with. And yeah, I guess that's a bigger question then is, is it in the public interest for us to know these things? Or is it time that we gave the victims and the alleged perpetrators space to have this dealt with by professionals in court?
1: I think that we have moved to a 24-hour news cycle and we have now reached a position whereby things spread so quickly and with such force and they can place pressure on individuals in profound ways. Look at the the, the tragedy of the Brittany Higgins case where the amount of uh, exposure in that particular matter means that it's never been ventilated and that's very unfair to Ms Higgins but it's also equally unfair to Mr Lerman who's never been found guilty of anything and now goes with that that reputation to the world. This is a challenging topic, and it needs to be addressed by professionals in the professional zeitgeist. If someone's done it, and they're found guilty, of course, you should name them. Of course, their name should be shown that what they've done deserves the strongest recrimination. And I'm the first to say that uh, false accusations are about three to 4%. So they are a minority of cases. But if your life is destroyed on the back of a false accusation, that's something that we as a society should also be concerned about. Unfortunately, these complex matters have grey in them and deserve to be looked at through the lens of, you know, all perspectives.
0: Yeah, it's it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out. And uh, also, I guess, some time for some soul searching for all of us. Jahan, thanks so much for your time today and for joining us on The Briefing.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Jahan Kalanta there, a Sydney-based lawyer who attracted global attention for his commentary on the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial. And that is it for this extra episode of The Briefing. Tom and the team will be back tomorrow morning from six.